another episode with a with consulting. Uh, today, I am speaking with someone that I've been waiting to talk to for a very, very long time, um, Jamison Watts. And I'm going to have him introduce himself, but I, I'll give a little bit of a background on how we know each other. We met many, many years ago, over a decade ago, um, at an industry conference in Portland, Oregon, and have stayed in touch ever since. And somehow our roads have always continued to converge with each other. So over my sort of professional career and working in digital marketing and um, working in the enterprise and working with clients, uh, my roads led to a place where I was working with data science at some point. Uh, his roads have kind of led in an academic perspective, but also around data science. And so today's topic is just going to be about that. It's going to be data science. And um, we're just going to be catching up and we're going to share the latest and greatest of our perspectives. And thanks for joining me today. I would love for you to just introduce yourself to the general audience and just give a little bit of an overview about what you do. Sure. Thanks, Ombi. Um, so uh, I am currently the executive director of computing and data science programs at Willamette University. Uh, I'm also an associate professor of marketing and data science. Most of my research uh, straddles a little bit of marketing, a little bit of data science. Um, I uh, publish in outlets like the Journal of Advertising and uh, Journal of Interactive Marketing. However, most of my work these days uh, is, you know, wrangling uh, surly faculty um, and uh, making my students uh, uh, happy and excited uh, to learn about data science and computer science at the university. That's perfect. I love that. But I do want to ask this because I have you here. What is a data scientist and what do they do? So a data scientist is basically an uncomfortable marriage between a mediocre programmer and a mediocre statistician. So you've got this Venn diagram, right? Where right in the middle of that is an incredible amount of value. But I would never call a data scientist like a true software engineer, nor would I call a data scientist, or at least most of the data scientists out there like a true statistician. And so where they end up kind of finding their sweet spot is at the intersection of these two things. So you got to automate some processes, understand databases, but then also enough predictive modeling to be dangerous. Okay. And the secret sauce is really like a deep contextual knowledge. So maybe you are into sports, right? So one of my students, um, is interviewing with the San Diego Padres right now. I think that's what they're called. I'm not like a sports ball person. So like, you know, I think that's who they are. He was telling, he's really into it. So he's like down there interviewing, right? And so that deep contextual knowledge, right, is super important because you have to understand, well, what are the features? What are the things that I have to actually create or pull out of the data that may be able to predict something on the other end. Right. Um, so it's it's kind of this like three-way Venn diagram, software or programming, statistics, and then context. And then the data scientist sits right in the middle. Great description. 
what are you seeing today? When did marketing become, we have to include technology, we have to include data science, we have to have an understanding of it. And then same thing with the sort of data science perspective, like, is there a clear divide or did you, did you start to blend the two? Like, how did you kind of find yourself in both worlds and where did that evolution come from? I started life, my professional life anyway, as a software engineer. And I did that for about 10 years. I went back and I got an MBA uh, with a focus on marketing. And so for kind of the second part of my career, I was working with marketing and technology, but more from the software development side. Then I went back and got a PhD and my PhD is in marketing, but that's basically a PhD in economics. Um, the training is very similar. And when you do that kind of research training, you learn a lot of the tools in the data scientist toolbox. So econometrics, predictive modeling, um, statistical analysis, those sorts of things. And so for me, it was this combo, right, of my software engineering early in my career, my marketing management mid-career, and then knowledge of uh, kind of research and applied research um, kind of in the third part of my professional life. Uh, and so that is my journey. Um, and really, as I was finishing my doctoral work, um, the intersection of marketing and data science was really starting to take off, right? So if you, so I finished my PhD in in uh, 2015, um, and that was about the time when folks were first starting uh, to think about, for instance, machine learning as a viable tool for marketing intelligence or um, digital advertising um, or other uh, uh, elements of the marketer's toolbox. And it makes sense to me because I, I feel like I was in that space too like i didn't ask to get into data science by any means it was one of those things that came about and was shiny and exciting and folks wanted to get in on it and as a marketer it was we had to get into the game and so it was that sort of natural piece of it and and we you know you hear this all the time we we learned as we went along when it came to data science it was just so new to all of us and that level of discovery but by nature and by trade i'm a marketer like that's my background I'm curious to get your thoughts on um, these new platforms that are out there now, but everything that I used to use back in the day, like marketing tools, sales tools, um, and still now, they all do data, an element of data science. Like they all say, you know, um, Salesforce has Einstein. And I still don't think that there's an understanding of what that means, but what does it mean to you? I think that. The reason it's there is because it's a popular topic, right? Yes. Um, uh, but but there's something that's going on that, that that's slightly separate that I think is actually very real, and that is uh, the uh, automation of the predictive modeling process itself. Yeah. And you asked about students earlier and what they expect coming into my programs, and and most of them actually expect to do a lot of predictive modeling. Uh, so that's machine learning, various other, you know, types of techniques, um, 
to take data, find patterns, right? Say something about it. The truth is, as a data scientist, you spend maybe two to three percent of your time doing predictive modeling. Um, most of your time is on other tasks, data wrangling, data cleaning, talking to clients, working with managers, gathering requirements. Um, then you get this little, you know, two percent predictive modeling. Right. And then you go back and you start interpreting what's going on, coming up with presentations to communicate to other people, figure out how your findings impact, you know, some decision that an organization wants to make. Right. Yeah. And so what I think all of these things are like, whatever, Einstein embedded, whatever the clever marketing term is. Right. It's this like two and a half percent of the data scientist time has just kind of been pulled out, like thrown in this little box and, and done for them. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. They have to make it as user-friendly as possible. And you don't have data scientists using this, right? Like we're talking about marketers, we're talking about managers, we're talking about directors who want to see a dashboard that makes sense. So in my opinion about what I see when I use those tools is that there's a heavy element of visualization. So as long as whatever sort of mess of data or whatever data they have on hand, if this, it, we'll use Einstein again, can make something look, take shape of some sort so that managers can say, oh, okay, well, you can see it's green and it's going in this direction, or you can see that the next best action was to have a salesperson reach out, then that to me is like their version of value. For me, when I think about the different kind of data science work that I did, that was more probably a little bit closer to the modeling that you're referring to, but that's because they were they were building something in-house. It wasn't anything that was a platform, but it was really a data scientist. They were building models. They were taking all the data from across the company and trying to find predictions about um, what the next best thing was that we could do, where we should put our money or where, how we should budget it out, actually build programs around that and make sense of that. I don't know. I feel like it's a little a little more kludgy and a little bit more black box. And I think that that's where things like Einstein was born was because there was this element of these teams in their their lab laboratory going heads down, building these things, making predictions and then we just have to kind of consume what comes out of it. Like it, for me I feel like there was a, there was that that piece or maybe for me that's the missing piece. Is maybe that was the leap from from that mad scientist piece to a funny cartoon like Einstein who like presents a pretty report to you. I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is just the realization that um, data scientists of the type that you worked with um, are extremely expensive. Yes. And, and so if you're going to gain any sort of efficiencies in this process, because everybody needs this stuff, then what you want to do is you want to automate as much of that expensive employee time as you possibly can. So I think that's another major motivator. And if you actually look at the data science jobs that are actually out there, really only about, you know, five to 10% of them are at the level of or what the folks at Nike are doing, um, you know, and, and those jobs often are looking for, you know, an MIT or a Carnegie Mellon master's student or a PhD student from, you know, some other uh, discipline. 
to do that work because it it's so heavily focused on on the statistics and the math. Ninety um, percent of the jobs out there do not require that. Okay. You know, ninety percent of the jobs out there are kind of a notch down from that, where you still need to understand the basics of predictive modeling and have some intuitions about what's going on and how to interpret. But you're really in your day to day uh, focused on the client interface, on kind of data warehousing, uh, managing ugly, messy spaghetti data systems that exist all over the world, right? Um, and then figuring out how to translate something that, you know, a, a black box produces into an actionable insight for some manager. Yes. The thing that I do want to kind of lead into and ask more about is that idea about context, because one part of that Venn diagram was contextual. When you say context, you're referring to what the data is telling you, or do you refer to it like, what, what does the business mean? So if I'm being asked to, uh, you know, sell shoes uh, to soccer fans, well, I better know something about soccer, right? right? And I need to be able to know something about that context so that I know what features from the available data are the ones that I should focus on kind of creatively exploring, engineering, transforming, and incorporating into the predictive model. So of the work that I've done, the Venn diagram that you refer to, that you speak to, there's a lot of emphasis on the programming. Can you technically, physically do this task inside of whatever the system? Uh, the context is, I think, the one that I see most lacking. I think that that's where if there was a data scientist out there that had that element, I think that that would make them pretty, pretty powerful. So well, I agree with you. Anvi, that's what we're doing. Yes, we, okay. we built Good. a program <laughs> around this idea. Perfect. Okay. The role that you're in is relatively new. I mean, it's um, maybe a year or so. But I, I'd love to kind of hear even you stepping into this and building out this program. What was your vision for this? So um, I, I had this conversation with my wife recently. Um, and the question was broadly like, okay, so why are you doing this, honey? Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, her interpretation of the situation is, okay, Jameson gets really bored with stuff. And so he has to constantly do something new in order to keep himself entertained. Um, I think that to a certain extent, right, that's true, but only in the following way. Like, this is where all of the cool stuff is going on right now. This is where the action is um, in uh, the area that I'm familiar with. Uh, and that is borne out in the fact that demand for the stuff we're putting out there is absolutely extraordinary. Um, and uh, I think that the students get it. 
Um, I think that the industry is actually behind the students in understanding this need in a sense, because when I look at uh, industry job postings and other things like that, um, they aren't really asking for what they will end up needing. And I think this gets back, and the reason I'm bringing this up is is to kind of a, a roundabout way of answering your question, which is, okay, why am I doing this? And, you know, why am I kind of getting drawn in this direction? Well, industry, they all think that they need MIT PhD data scientists. And those folks are going to be kind of overwhelmingly focused on the programming and the statistics. Yes. Right? They don't actually need that. And less so as we go forward because of the sorts of automation tools that exist in the marketplace. Look at something like DataRobot, which basically fully automates the predictive modeling portion, right, of the data scientist kind of day. Um, and so the programs that I developed were a response to that mismatch, right? To the fact that, you know, I come from kind of a business background and I saw all of these data science programs not producing the kinds of folks that businesses actually needed. Right. Um, and so that was kind of the genesis of, of this whole approach. Yeah, and, and that to me is really where even when you and I first started talking about this, we talked about this sort of missing middle, I think was that was yeah. the concept or the phrase that we used around that. And that was really, it was funny that I was coming from a place at the time of working with individuals where I felt like it was only like a heavy emphasis on one or two parts of that Venn diagram. And there was just this missing portion that I had to spend a lot of time having to lean into or find other people to augment that. And there was that, that need for it. and your perspective is like more of a well-rounded perspective where it's, you know, again, you use the word mediocre, but really where they don't necessarily need to be these uh, mathematicians or statisticians that are top of their class, et cetera. It, it's, it is for me more important to have someone who understands the business need around this. Like if I was to have to choose from that Venn diagram, like they're not all created equal, I would choose the context one. I would mm -hmm. choose contextually. Like I've looked at job postings for data scientists too, or I've seen it kind of crop up here and there. And it's always front and center. It's always those sort of technical capabilities, right? Like that you know how to program. You know R, you love R. You go to bed thinking about R. You wake up and you're thinking about R. Like, oh my God, I just, I'm thinking about R. And that's like their number one thing from a, from a perspective of it. And it isn't even like, do you have like an element of understanding business or do you understand where this company is trying to go or how we're trying to grow what our managers, what the, what the product is, just what our customers go through, what is their experience that they have and what could you build that could make their lives easier? You know, one of these days uh, we're going to write like an HBR uh, piece on the missing middle. I think. Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, so I was at the, the senior leadership retreat for the, the university yesterday, um, and uh, one of the things that um, we focused on as a group was how 
our various professional schools benefit from being embedded in a broader kind of liberal arts university. Um, and I think that's where, um, you know, I can actually back up my claim, right? That we okay. are interested in context as a part of the well-rounded data scientist, right? I've got access mm -hmm. to kind of faculty and other expertise that you don't normally find in like an engineering school, right? Right, right. Um, and so we can weave that in to our requirements and, and programming in such a way that the students we produce, maybe they aren't, you know, the top of the class when it comes to software development, right? Sure. But they are going to actually be able to address some of the most complex issues that crop up in the world. And right. you and I both know the world is messy, right? And being able to think through how all of these things fit together and then thinking about how technology can play a role in helping you fix some of it or change some of it, right, yes. is, is really, really valuable. It, it is true, and I, I'm hoping that you, me, whoever is part of that paradigm shift, whether it's in academia or in the business world, to look at a different kind of whatever employee, a different kind of worker, a different contribution to the company. I interviewed someone who had a PhD, like, and it wasn't some kind of you know whatever programming enough where I assumed they had a lot of comfort or that they could get in. I could put them in front of a client. We could jump right into work together. And all I did, and I think that when I last spoke to your class, I said one of the questions I asked people was to describe a scenario to me or to how would you handle this or tell me about the last project you were really excited about in that way. And I think I and I think I just kind of posited, okay, so the client is asking for this, like how would you handle this or, or what what would you think about? And they just kind of kind of panicked. They did not know how to handle that, and and they very clearly said to me, I, I'm not going to answer that question. I need you to provide a requirements document. Like I, they said, if I don't see it on paper and there's not like prescriptive requirements of one, two, and three, I will push the buttons one, two, and three. And I will, like, if there's a bug that I need to fix, I'll do it. But if you ask me anything beyond that piece of paper, I, I just will not do it. Like you're subjecting me to something that I'm not comfortable with. And I respected that, right? I, I respected that they would say that during an interview versus being put front in front of a client. But it really was like I, I would say like that was the majority of the interviews and conversations I had. Like people who on paper, you know, were were had these degrees or they had whatever top of their class. But if you ask them something in a contextual, which like you said, it's messy, it's context, business is just that, or you actually have to go to a company and produce something. That's where you get put in those situations. And so that to me was really eye-opening when I went through those experiences and on paper. And that's when I knew I had to look for a different kind of candidate. I had to see what was beyond that because when I when I was sticking to what was on paper, I was meeting a type of persona or having a persona that just was not comfortable 
with the middle. They were not comfortable with that. Can we have like a little trademark icon come up anytime we say missing middle? It's, it's happening. So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll get my, my, my lawyer to write me something at the beginning of this video to make sure anybody who watches is uh, held to it. Uh, I, I love that we are talking about this. I love that you're doing something about it. I love that this is something that, you're passionate about and that you're aware of and that you see um do your, are your students like hungry for that too are they also seeing that as they kind of go out into the world they um so it, it's mixed so i've got students um who take on fairly traditional uh jobs as well so for instance um one of my uh, graduate students just took a job at Activision uh, uh, working as a data scientist on their Call of Duty um, product. Uh, I've got another graduate student who took a job at uh, PitchBook as uh, an associate machine learning engineer. So also very kind of like traditional, like head down, fingers on the keyboard kind of um, uh, uh, positions. Um, on the other hand, I have quite a few students who are starting to go into consulting roles, um, who are starting to, so one took a job at KPMG uh, recently, for instance. Um, another is a solutions architect at Adobe. Um, and she is basically the embodiment of this missing middle. She works between kind of the PhD statisticians and the um, uh, client interfacing uh, employees at Adobe, you know, on one of their technology products. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, customer journey analytics, but yeah. Um, so it, you know, it's, we're starting to get some traction where I think um, there is still a gap is in the expectations of organizations. However, I think that's going to change organically. And the reason I think it's going to change organically is because they're just going to realize at some point that they're paying a lot of really expensive people and they're not getting much value out of it. Um, and I have nothing against, you know, PhD techies, right? I'm one of them. You know, I, I like doing this stuff. Uh, but, it, you know, it's questionable how much actual value I would provide to an organization, right? If I were to just take, you know, kind of the skills that that I've learned, um, you know, as a researcher, for instance, right, and import them into an organization. That is with the following caveat. There are, you know, Yahoo Labs, Google Labs, Microsoft Labs, right? Like there are spots for for this kind of work. Um, but it's it's a very, very small a chunk of the overall workforce. Um, and we have plenty of universities that, 
you know, provide that kind of person for that kind of job. Um, what we don't have, you know, are universities providing the kind of individual that most companies actually need. Right. Yes, definitely. I'm going to ask follow up with two things that you said that stuck out to me. One is the expense part of this and two is the value part of this. So even in my line of work, I, um, I spend a, a deal of time through the education piece. I, I even think what I do, I spend time in that education piece to, to prove out that value say, this is how I will measure value for you. This is what the program will, the output will be. Um, tell me what your spend was, et cetera. How do you do this from data? I, I think data science is even, even more difficult to do. So how do you now rationalize the expense piece of this and say to, let's just say you're pitching to a company or you're pitching to whatever that is. And you're saying, you know, I know you think that there's this space that's just way too expensive and you have no idea what's going on, but actually you can do something bite-sized or something meaningful for your company that's not, that actually saves you money and here's how we show value from it. How do you wrangle those two things? What is your storytelling around that? Because I have to be really good at that, but I imagine it's even more difficult for, for data science. Um, there's two different levels that, that you can play at, right? So there's, there's one level which I think is um, where actually most organizations are right now, which is just catching up and, and starting to do a major digital transformation, right? Most, you know, uh, insurance salesmen for farmers, right, aren't, you know, comfortable using or incorporating some sort of, you know, analysis of their, you know, potential customer marketplace as part of, Right. It's still very kind of like driven by intuition and experience and other things like that. So I think that they're like the easiest sell, right, right. is the low the low hanging fruit sell, which is like, look, we're gonna do some like pretty basic like descriptive statistics. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna put some like charts and graphs in front of you and we're gonna say like look at this right when you talk to people yes. and like that i think you know is more traditionally like a business analyst style position um but uh you know you can go just a little bit more towards the data science side on that and and derive i think a bit more value right like by understanding things like what is a distribution and why do we have to care what that distribution looks like, right? So there's some kind of basic statistics concepts that you're going to learn in a data science program that you might or might not get, right, um, you know, kind of with a, a typical analyst training. Um, the other level is at kind of the predictive modeling side where you can say, look, you know, I'm going to give you a list of the customers that are most likely to churn next month. Yeah. You did. You didn't have that before, <laughs> right? Now you do. Yes. Pay me a million bucks. I wish that for any data scientist out there, if you guys can figure that out. Uh, but yeah, I mean that this, 
the latter of what you described is really where businesses are going to expect the data scientists to play in. Like they, they love giving them a playground to figure out whatever it is they need to figure out. But at the end of the day, it's sort of, we need to like make, take actionable steps towards it. That's a quick, that's a quick sell. It's a low hanging fruit, get it done. Um, and um, for, for me too, that proves the value at least some of it. And you can do these little bite-sized things and, do you see um, education as being one of your biggest hurdles right now of actually practical use of data science in the industries that you work in? Like you actually have to educate them first and then you get to start working? <laughs> I think so, actually. I, you know, so one thing that I have on my to-do list is um, like, is to create a set of model job postings, mm, right? Yeah. Where I have a template for companies to put together, right? So that they actually, you know, get applicants that are going to bring value to their organization. Um, because most of them, you know, you can just go look at whatever, go look at LinkedIn jobs or, or whatever, and, and you're going to find you know, all of the data science jobs out there look exactly the same. They're like, must have experience with R and Python and SQL, um, right? And, you know, and then they go through this process and then they have some, you know, uh, kind of egomaniac bro giving a tech interview, you know, where, you know, (laughs) <laughs> where their whole job is to kind of tear the candidate down and make themselves feel better. And like, it, it's just kind of a ridiculous and unrealistic, you know, um, example of what the actual job is. Right. Yeah. I, um, I, but you know, I go, I go back to this. I feel like part of, and I, this is me playing devil's advocate on the other side of this. Part of the pain points from the business perspective and as somebody who worked on the line of business directly with that team and provided requirements and validated models. I'm not going to go back to the concept of the black box, but it is where being able to articulate what they're doing and actually showing, um, you know, show me a a business case of what you're building and tell me that what what I should expect at the end of this. And I think that that's where it's almost like there's a, they, they seem like magicians, right? Like there's a reason why people who are either really good at it or whatever, they're like these, these aggressive tech bros. It's because it's like they've reached this status of like magician. We don't know what he does, but he does magical <laughs> things, right? Like there's these magical data scientists that just float around and they tell you and they, and they predict the future. <laughs> I know. Uh, I like, I really dislike that kind of, you know, s- signaling portion of the title i you know i i have to have it right like because everyone sees data science and they're like oh yeah nate silver like this is a thing and like i want to i want to be nate silver right so like it's definitely positive for me and my programs in that sense um but what i would say is like don't trust magicians um if you can't explain your model you don't kind of deserve the job. And and I think one of the things that we we emphasize uh, and actually drill our students on is 
um, interpretation and, and explanation. And I often tell them like, look, use the quick and dirty models um, and do exploratory machine learning, right? Use a logistic regression, use naive Bayes, use like, use something, use linear regression, right? And, and, and see like if these quick and dirty models are kind of converging on the same story, right? If they are, then when you have a spare weekend, go do your random forest or your boosted whatever, right? And let the computer run in the background for three or four days. And it's going to come back and 95% of the time, it's going to tell you the exact same thing that the very simple models told you. So if that's the case, right, then you really need to kind of think seriously about what's more valuable is it more valuable to have like a slightly higher kappa right um you know so or is it more valuable to be able to like explain extremely clearly exactly what your model is doing and why to the potential decision makers at your organization most of the time it's the latter right not not some kind of like marginal increase in accuracy Right. And like you mentioned earlier, like the half of that, like save it, publish it, take it to a university. That's fine. And and, and do that. But the, the latter is really what is going to keep you employed and keep you going on. Um, and that's really just value to the business. I know that it sounds like, you know, commodifying that work, but it just kind of has to be. I would say, well, like, you know, I think there are legal and ethical reasons to do it also. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the time. Uh, unless you are able to expose the underlying mechanisms kind of driving your results, you don't get enough um, critical eyeballs on the process that led to uh, the predictions. Um, So for instance, at the state of Oregon, uh, they've got data scientists using machine learning to place kids in foster care. Um, you yeah. can't use a black boss model for that, right? Like you need to have a clear, transparent explanation for why that's happening. And so they end up using basic decision trees um, as their modeling approach because it's clear, it's defensible, it's something that their frontline workers can understand and employ in the field. Yes. Okay. I. I know that we're over time. We're a couple minutes over, but this has just been the best conversation. I'm glad we saved it until now because then we were able to get all of our ranting out and we saved up all of our, you know, conversation points for it. Um, Like I said, we have been talking about this for years and it's funny that these points, um, even though it's sort of changed a little bit in terms of just keeping with the times and topical points, Foundationally, it's always been the same thing. Data science is data science. Marketing is marketing. Business is business. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm really glad we had this conversation today. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with before we go? Anything you want to want to say before we before we jump off? Um, not much. Hire ABS Consulting. They know about the missing middle trademark, um, and uh, they will help you fill uh, in that gap. Thanks so much for the plug. All right, well, 
Uh, but yeah, Jameson, great chatting with you. And we'll talk again. All right. Thanks, Avi.